read it all. By God's grace, I believe that I can. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Everybody say give. Give. Amen. Part of Christian living is giving. Now, I want you to notice that in the context, Jesus goes to name calling again. So this is not Niceanity. This is Christianity. A lot of times we as Christians are nice in the culture. People will say, you're a nice person. You turn the other cheek. You're really cool to hang out with. That's great. Those are great compliments. But they're not always going to think we're nice. For example, while Jesus was talking, he is literally naming their names and telling you what they do. And he's saying, don't be like these guys over here. So when you give, give, but don't be like the televangelist who promises you a million dollars when you get your gift. Or don't be like these charities over here that announce to everybody how awesome they are, but yet they're corrupted behind everybody's back. Don't be like hypocrites. I just like to say that because often when I preach and I make comparisons of modern day church, people think I'm a hater. They're like, Joe, why are you calling out these people? Why don't you just leave them alone? You can hardly go a few verses in the Bible without Jesus messing with people. So just get over Niceanity, okay? Just everybody say, you hypocrite. Come on, get bold and say it. You hypocrite. (laughs) Amen. Now understand that you're not supposed to do that to be mean or to be a jerk, but there's going to be times in your life where you're going to have to call people hypocrites. Now, we'll get to the part where it says, don't judge lest ye be judged. That's next week. Come for that. I have a little bit of a funny thing I'm going to do to start that out with. So make sure you come to Matthew chapter 7, don't judge lest ye be judged, because I'm going to share with you some goodies on that. But before we get into that, let's just understand that if Jesus called people hypocrites, that had to bother the ones he was talking about. So imagine, you know, like while Jesus is saying that, you know, people are looking at their neighbor going, weren't you just standing on a corner announcing to everybody what you were doing? Uh, or, you know, while he was talking about, you know, they, they give and they want everybody to know, and then they boast in it. Weren't you just boasting, cousin? Weren't you just boasting about how much you gave to this? I know they knew these people. As a matter of fact, when he's talking here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, his predominant audience is his disciples. That's why he's not naming the sins of the Roman Empire. If anybody ever says to you, well, if homosexuality was so bad, then why didn't Jesus say, thou shalt not be a homosexual? Because it was popular in the Roman culture. Just say back to them, he didn't say anything about pedophilia, and it was popular in the Roman culture as well. Why don't you think Jesus is nailing homosexuality or infanticide? The Romans would take their unwanted children and throw them over cliffs or throw them in the rivers. Why don't you think Jesus is doing that? Because he's not here talking to pagans. He's talking to Jewish disciples. And in the Jewish faith, these things were toheva. These things were abominations. So he's not talking about the abominations 
of infanticide, homosexuality, pedophilia. He's talking about the things that they do religiously and think is okay. He's saying, y'all give, and you go to the synagogues, and you do it. And Bible even talks about another time where Jesus watches them give and then judges how much they give. That's another discussion. It gets quiet when I preach like that. You're wondering how am I going to apply that to your life. Well, let me help you right now. Jesus watches what you give and is going to judge what you give. The application is simple. Not your pastor, but your Jesus. Amen? But anyways, he's talking to them about real issues, and he's saying, don't be like hypocrites. So we're supposed to give. We're supposed to support the synagogue or the church. We're supposed to be generous to the needy. We're supposed to give our tithes and our offerings. We're not supposed to rob from God. But then he goes one step deeper. You can be a tither. You can be a giver. You can even be generous in how you give. But you can do it out of your own selfishness out of your own pride, out of your own desire to be recognized. Oh, and I see it all the time in the church. What's it like to be a hypocrite, to be one that announces you're giving in the church? It's like the people who go on that one mission trip, and then they exploit all the poor people in their pictures, and they're like, come around me. Here I am. Show the world. Show my Facebook how loving I am. I'm just like Angelina Jolie with all the poor orphans. And we see that attitude even in the churches today. Look at how much we do. The mayor gave us a plaque. You mean the abortion-loving, homosexual-loving, corrupted mayor? That one gave you a plaque? Bible says, woe unto you when all men speak well of you. Well, I'll take a plaque, but I wouldn't brag about it. Let's put it that way. But you know the difference, don't you? There's people who give, and they just give, as the Bible says, without letting their left hand know what their right hand is doing. And then there's a giving. There's a charity that you can kind of publicize and say, here I am. Uh, I'm, I'm going to the soup kitchen on Thanksgiving. Who else is joining me? You know, when we first started growing and the church became more than just a handful of us, I noticed that the Chicago Shore, the kind of young adult millennial, loved that we did these things on Thanksgiving and Christmas. They would come out in their, in their designer clothes, and I see some heads nodding, you remember this, and they would come out and put on their gloves and feed the poor people of the West Side. And then I began to realize that that was just their way of checking off that box. Don't be like that. When I first started the church, you know, it was only a handful of us, and we would put up just like we did today. No coincidence, by the way, giving is being mentioned while we're talking about a building fund. No coincidence at all. And aren't you happy that a church doesn't have to do one just to do one? Last year we didn't do one. Isn't that amazing? So I just want you to see how we build trust with you as a church. And anytime you want to see the financial records, talk to Pastor Lauren, the one holding the microphone before me, and she'll print out to you any records you would like to see. We're an open book church here. And all churches are supposed to be that way, by the way. But when I first started, you know, only a handful of people, we would put up the building fund, and then, oh, brother, big bucks. Brother, big bucks. And I got to make them a little bit, you know, like Boss Hoggish. You know, by the way, I used to live in the South and kind of bring in that Southern twang here or Dukes of Hazzard. So he's going to be a little bit boss hoggy, okay? So Brother Big Bucks had to come over to me and say, Well, son, you let me know what you need. After everybody gives whatever's left over, you let me know what you need. I'm Brother Big Bucks. 
Well, brother, big bucks, I told you what I needed. It's on the board. Well, how do I give a thousand, two thousand? Well, you give it just like the person gave a dollar. You walk over here and you drop it in the bucket. You would say, pastor, people do that? Oh, yeah, people did that all the time. I would have to tell them, just give. Well, I want to give after everybody else's gift. Like after all the peons gave, you let me know what's left over and I'll drop it like it's hot. Just to let you know it was me that did it. You guys get my voice, right? You get my little acting up here, that greedy, like I want to be noticed. I want, I want everybody to know how much I gave. Listen to me. If God told you to give 6000 and pay the whole thing off, you give it and don't care who matters. Uh, don't matter who knows. Just give it. Some of you are told by God to give amounts and you rebuke the devil. The devil's not telling you to give $1,000 to the church. Satanas, I will not give that number that just came into my mind randomly while I was in church and praying. Of course, I just got my tax returns and I've already planned on spending it on five other things. Satanas. Let me just tell you a little bit about Satanas. He doesn't tell you to give large amounts to the church. So stop rebuking the Holy Spirit and calling that God. You're like, oh, he went there. Yes, because I love you. And we're going to talk about money today because it's going to come up again. And your Jesus talked about money. So, hey, there's people here that give $60. That's a lot. There's people that can give $6,000. That's a drop in the bucket. There's others that would make a sacrifice to give sixty. There's others that would make a sacrifice to give 6000 You see, when we give, we give to the Lord. And it's between us and God. One time my friend, he was in a church service. There was a missionary raising money. And the Lord said, do you trust me? And he said, yes. He said, do you love your money more than me? And he said, no, Lord, I love you more than my money. He said, then I want you to give three blank checks to the people sitting next to you and say, give whatever God told you to give to the missionary. My bank account will cover it. Of course, he wanted to have a rebuking session with Satan. Satan, you're such a liar. I'll never do, like Satan's going to have him do that. It's a true story. He pulled out his checkbook back in the days. That's what you would write on to give money to the church if you didn't have cash. And he gave it to the three people sitting next to him. And he said, God told me to let you be as generous as he was telling you to give before I walked up. Because whatever he was speaking to you, don't, don't get crazy with it. But whatever he was telling you to give, you give now out of my checkbook. He said, none of those checks bounced. And he says, he's been living a life of generosity and blessing ever since then. Said his wife's business is blessed. He also has a business on the side that he himself does. Blessings followed him. Why? Because he was willing to let go of what was in his hands so that Jesus would let go of what's in his hands. If you're holding on to what you got, why should Jesus let go of what he's got? And so do we have examples of corrupt pastors and corrupt churches all the time? Sadly, yes. But you ought to find a good church, a good place to give, good missionaries to help and serve with and support them. And don't do it because you want everybody to think about how awesome you are. Do it because God told you to do it. Can I hear an amen? And this is not my word. This is not the word of a televangelist asking you to sow a 1,000 so you can get 10,000 back. This is Jesus' words in verse 4, so that your giving may be done in secret, then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And the one that, just to go back to the story, 
the one that Jesus said gave the most had the least. But the Bible says when he was watching the offering, she gave all she had. Let me say this last story of giving before we move on. The largest church in the world is not in America, not in Canada, nowhere close to us. It's in South Korea and Seoul, Korea. It's called the Full Gospel Center, started by Young Ji Cho. After the Korean War, the people of the Korean Peninsula, Peninsula were devastated and decimated by war. And the church was there to help rebuild. He was a citizen of that nation, but American missionaries had reached him. They left him an old World War II Korean-style tent for the military, just a big green tent, some chairs and supplies. He began to preach, and he began to go after God. And the place began to fill up. The people were so desperate. And then they began to believe God to build a building. They stepped out in faith, and I don't know the number, and I don't know what it would have been in our day and age, you know, comparison, because this was like in the 50s. But let's just pick a number. It was a million dollars or something. And so all these poor Koreans were going to believe God for this amazingly high budget for a beautiful building. And the first day that he prayed, he thought people would give, you know, as he presented it to the people, but they really didn't. And as time went on, they weren't really giving. And he was thinking, well, I thought some people would give, but there's not hardly anything coming in. So it came down to the last week, I believe, and he said, now listen, guys, we need to have an all-night prayer meeting and lock the doors of the tent, you know, because if y'all don't give, the building's not going to come. And so he preached his heart out, and then all of a sudden, this poor woman, ravaged by war, probably a widow, the way he describes the story, came forward with her rice bowl and her chopsticks and set it at the feet of the pastor. He tells the story way better than I could, but listen, he goes, I preached too hard. I made them feel so guilty. This poor woman now has brought to us her only bowl and eating utensils. I've preached too hard, and, and how is she going to eat now, and what am I going to say to the rest of the community? They're going to think I'm robbing her. He said to the woman, he said, you, you can't give this. You have to take this back. Please take this back. And this is what she said. She said, if I don't give, then I can't share my heart of gratitude for what God has done in my heart in this church. She says, Pastor, I have to give it. Let me give it. And then she walked away. And he said, the spirit of greed, even among these poor people, you would have thought there would have been no greed, but they were so afraid of war and, and, and all that they had lost that they had become greedy, holding on to everything, not willing to step out in faith. He says that the moment this woman set down her rice bowl and chopsticks, the spirit of greed was broken over that congregation. And they began to rush forward, and he said it. they raised the budget in one day, in one meeting. You see what happens when we break the spirit of greed over our lives? I remember being in Chilapa, Mexico, feeling sorry for them in this poor Mexican village. I'm thinking, you, you know, why are you even taking up offerings? Keep your offering. But I started to remember those stories. Same thing in Indian villages. It's like, why are they even giving? Just keep it, man. Come on, feed your family. But no, they understand the principle. 
Just like with Cain and Abel, we have to give it back to God. And the one who doesn't give their best is the one that comes under a curse. And that doesn't mean that rich people can't have stuff too in the world and uh, ungodly people can't be rich. But what it means is you can't have riches and peace without God. And so you might as well let go of your riches and put God first so that in all that you get after you've put God first, it will never become your God and steal your treasure. Can I hear an amen? We'll get back to some of those goodies in a moment, but I wanted to set the foundation. Let's go to prayer in verse 5, moving onward. It says, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. You know, once again, just calling them out. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues. Wasn't that you last week, Bob, doing that? On the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Notice again the promise of reward. Verse 7, and when you pray, don't keep babbling like the pagans. Who are the pagans of that time? The Romans. So he's like, don't be like the hypocrite Jews over here, and don't be like the pagan Romans over here. For they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Now, before we pray, the Our Father together, and I have it in a classic version, I want you to hear this clearly. Jesus is telling us not to pray to be seen. And what do I see most of the time when these pastors get together for prayer meetings? And Pastor Bob is now going to pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we just bless thee today for this wonderful congregation. We ask thee that on thy highest uh, presence of heaven that thou would bless us below here on earth. And you listen to them, and it's boring. And it's and it's politically motivated, not in the sense of being confrontational to the political powers. No, I wish they would pray that. But it's political in the sense of, listen to me, I'm Pastor Bob, I can pray. And we call these preacher praise. Because he asked the pastor to preach, I asked the pastor to pray, he's going to preach as he prays. And then they hand the mic to the next one and to the next one. And then oftentimes, you know, the mayor's there, the alderman's there, and we pray for the aldermen. We ask you to help. Why don't we rebuke the alderman first? Why don't we try that? Why don't we tell the alderman about his sin? Hey, man, then we pray for him. That's all right, but we want to see a little bit of humility before that, you know. You can always tell, you know, when these, these politicians are so uncomfortable, you know. Like Rahm Emanuel, when he was getting prayed for, he's just, you know, they don't want it. Let's preach to them first and then say, now do you want me to pray? Do you want to pray that you'll be repenting as I pray for the sins you've committed and so forth? And so, once again, nothing, nothing against prayer meetings, nothing against mission trips, by the way, as we were talking about that before, nothing against taking pictures and things like that. But there's a difference between doing things hypocritically and doing things sincerely. This is why I don't go personally to those prayer meetings. This is why I haven't joined the coalition of pastors who go meet the governor once a year because I don't sense God's presence on any of it. If they're a pastor and they meet you and they want to get to know me, tell them to meet me on the streets with the gospel truck. Say, oh, yeah, my pastor would love to meet you. Just meet him at Taft High School, 3 o'clock this Friday, and y'all can pray out there. How about that? See, that's genuine, isn't it? 
I'm not trying to make myself look better than others, but let's be honest, how many of you have been in prayer meetings or have seen them and they feel the same way? And it's just hypocritical. It's just listen to me pray, listen to me talk to God. What does the Bible say? The Bible says you and I should go into our room, a closet in another version, and shut the door and pray in secret. We ought to have a prayer life, a prayer life, not just a prayer meeting, a prayer life. Look at your neighbor and say, get a life, a prayer life. Get a prayer life, man. You need one. Come on, get a life, a prayer life. I'm not here to boast about my prayer life, but I want to set an example. Because as I'm in cemetery, I mean seminary, they are telling us that pastors don't pray anymore. Well, is it any wonder when you look at how they preach? No, I mean, but it is sad, and it's shocking because you would think, Pastor, what are you getting paid for except to pray and study your word to dispense it out to us? That's literally what the book of Acts says they were there to do. So I consider myself part monk and part missionary. You guys afford me that privilege. I'm serious. I'm part monk. I get to be alone with God. I get to take as many prayer walks as I want. Thank you for that. And then I get to minister and preach the gospel as a missionary to the 21st century. That's literally what my job is. And so I want to share with you an example. Since I've been saved, I spend an hour to two alone with God every single day Not my sermon preparation, not things that make me look smart, or not book writing, not my college studies on the Bible, but personal one-on-one time with Jesus. I was talking to a young man who says, I don't feel the presence of the Lord anymore. Have I gotten so mature that the Lord doesn't need to remind me of his presence? Because one pastor told me that, that when you're young in the Lord, you need to feel his presence all the time. But now that you're mature, you don't need it so much. Kind of like a child can be out on its own. I said, the devil's a liar, man. I said, I feel Jesus more now than I ever have. I said, I need him more now than I ever have. I can feel his heartbeat. I can hear him next to me more than I ever have. And just this week as a testimony of the vibrance of the relationship that God has developed with me, because it's him, not me. I'm just along for the journey. I was weeping so hard that my jaw was shaking. The presence of God was so strong in my prayer time. My jaw was shaking. I was quivering in his presence as he was sharing with me how much he loves me and cares for me and wants me to draw even closer and closer to him. So prayer is very important. It's our way of communicating with God. It's not just talking. It's listening. And we ought to listen more than we talk. That's why God gave us two ears and one mouth. Amen? And then he says, don't be like the pagans. Because the pagans, they just take their prayers and they just keep going and going and going. You want to see what pagans pray like in our culture? Watch a Muslim pray. They pray these set prayers at the set time, bowing to their idol. That's exactly what pagans were like back in that day. You could give them a set prayer, just like the Hindus, a mantra, and they would say it over and over and over again. So guess what the Roman Catholics did around the 5th, 6th century? They said, hey, 
Let's take the place where Jesus said, don't keep babbling like pagans, and let's babble like pagans and say the Our Father all the time. And so they literally break the context of the Our Father. Say three Our Fathers, four Hail Marys, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed. And you just see people going through these things, praying their rosary. Oh, dear God, have mercy. He's telling you right here, when you pray, don't babble. Don't just keep repeating yourself over and over and over again, thinking because your many words are going to get an answer to prayer. God already knows what you need. Your prayer is a heartfelt expression to God. There are some times in my prayer closet where all I can say is, God, you know. God, you know what I'm going through right now. And I ask you to meet my need, God. It's not my many words. In that time that I felt with God in his presence this week, it wasn't I who was going on and on, and I kept repeating and repeating. No, it was I just sat down, and I was reading the word in Psalm 119, and it talks about how he gives perfect freedom to those who follow his commands. A lot of times you see my memes coming out of my devotional life, by the way. That's just a little secret there. And as I was just closing my eyes, meditating on all the great freedom that God has brought me, his presence came. And he said, son, I set you free because I love you. And then he began to speak to my heart about so many who have left the race of Christianity. And if you read that post, I wrote about the race. I was doing that with tears coming down my face. That was what God was speaking to me, is that no matter who leaves you, no matter who who turns aside, you keep running, Joe. I'm with you. So how should we look at the Our Father? We should look at the Our Father as a prayer workout, as Jesus teaching us the basic categories of prayer. That's why you never see it repeated verbatim anywhere else in the New Testament. If it was so popular to be repeated verbatim, then why is it when we see the apostles pray, we don't see them repeating it all together, our Father, you know. Why don't we see them doing that? We see them praying spontaneously from their heart, you know, just whatever the Lord was putting on their heart at that time. It's because the Our Father It's not meant to be mindlessly babbled. It's meant to teach you the components of a good spiritual workout. How many work out here? Can I see a hand raise? Can I hear an amen? Amen. We like to work out. And what you do when you work out is you do different exercises and you do different reps. What he is going to show you here in the Our Father are the different prayer exercises you should do when you're communicating with God. But let us read it out together to honor this great prayer, and you'll see I have it in the classic version. One, two, three. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It's a wonderful prayer to memorize. It's a wonderful prayer to recite. Once again, everything here is being balanced with the attitude. Going back to the giving, can we take pictures of mission trips? Yes, but don't do it to boast in it. When we talk about prayer meetings, can we do them? Absolutely, but don't do it from a shallow place. 
And then when we pray the Our Father, should you mindlessly keep babbling it? No. But can it help you at times to pray it as it is, as, as it was taught to us? Sure. Just like the Psalm 23 or other Psalms of David can be used as prayers. Don't think that to be wrong. Just make sure you're not babbling it and continuing to say it to try to earn something with God while you're hiding your heart. If you notice, people who do those things are hiding what's really going on in their heart. Let's go through the six steps, and let me just show you quickly how to pray an hour a day. There are six steps to the Our Father. If you did each one for 10 minutes, there's an hour a day with Jesus. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Number one, take 10 minutes to worship and honor God. Put on a worship tape, take your kids into the room with you, and just start worshiping 10 minutes. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Take another 10 minutes to ask God to bring his kingdom in you and through you. Before you ever ask for daily bread, ask for his kingdom. Before you ever ask for a raise, before you ever ask for anything new, ask for God's kingdom to come. You're putting him first. Then number three, give us our daily bread. See, us, it's not just give me my, it's give me or give us it's a plural. So when you pray for your blessings, never think of them as yours only. Pray for the blessings of your house, the blessings of the community, the blessings of your church. That should be one of the most exciting things you get to do with the raise is give more. Can I hear an amen? Pray for your nation. Then it says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Then spend another 10 minutes praying that God would convict you of sin and that if there's anyone who has sinned against you, you would forgive them. How many know you have a good day if you pray like this? Ten minutes praising God, ten minutes praying for his kingdom to come, ten minutes of asking for his blessings upon your life, ten minutes of your sins being forgiven and other sins being forgiven. And then how about this? Ten minutes of lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Begin to speak the word over every one of your weaknesses. If you have ten weaknesses in your life, find ten scriptures and pray it for one minute. Lord, you said that the meek shall inherit the earth. I pray that you will take away my pride and make me meek, God. Make me humble. Lead me not into the temptation of me thinking I'm always right. Lord, may I be teachable. May I be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. God, you said in your word that to lust with the eyes is to commit adultery of the heart. Lord, I pray that you purify my eyes. Lord, I pray that you purify my heart. I pray that when I look at the opposite sex, they look to me as a brother or a sister, a family member. Pray like that for 10 minutes and see how living for Jesus goes. And then end your last 10 minutes as you started, praising God. But now this time, praise God for all the things you just prayed for. See, you came into the prayer meeting going, hallowed be your name. You're just worshiping him. I love you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you that you're my healer. Thank you that you're my provider. And you're worshiping for those 10 minutes, right? And then now at the end, as you say, yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power, the glory. Say, God, I trust you with everything that I've prayed for your kingdom to come. I believe and I thank you that you're going to bless our church, our life groups, our discipleship, what I'm doing in your kingdom. Lord, I thank you that you're providing for my needs and the needs of the community, making me a blessed person to be a blessing. Lord, I thank you that you're leading me out of temptation. You're delivering me, God, from evil. You're teaching me how to forgive. I pray for forgiveness in all that I meet, Lord, forbearance. That's a good way to pray, isn't it? Amen. Now look at what Jesus says at the end here, verse 14. 
he sticks with that forgiveness theme, very similar to what we talked about last week. If we think that we're going to be forgiven while not forgiving others, we're lying to ourselves. He said, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And in the second service, I gave the example like this. If you think that you can't forgive others because they've sinned more against you than you've sinned against God, you have it wrong. I want everybody to hear this. You can't compare what you've done to God to what even Hitler did to mankind. You want to know why? Because you're much worse. You've sinned against God worse than Hitler sinned against mankind. You would say, man, that's, that's almost impossible. He killed 10 million people. That's 10 million sins. And he did all of these other wicked things. How in the world have I been that wicked towards God? One sin against God is against the eternal character of God. To sin against the eternal character of God is worthy of eternal damnation. We definitely believe Hitler will be punished, and I, as I believe there are grades of rewards, I believe there are grades of punishment. The Bible talks about that. He will have a certain part of hell and punishment for what he's done. I'm not saying that, but what I'm saying is if you try to take his category and say, I don't need to forgive him of that sin because I'm not that bad towards God, you're missing it entirely. It's like trying to say plastic, no matter how much you have of it, can never equal the strength of a diamond. It doesn't matter if you have a billion pounds of plastic. It will never equal the strength of a diamond. Your sin against God is that much greater in substance than all the sins people have ever done against you. It's a different category all to itself. A sin against God, one sin against God, if you were to put it on a scale, would be greater than all the sins that men and women have done against each other since the beginning of the human race. That is why Jesus tells parables about it. He goes so far to tell you a very simple parable. He said there was a man who owed his boss a million dollars, and the boss let him off. Then there was the man himself had a debt that somebody owed him of only like a few pennies. He wouldn't forgive that person of a few pennies, but he expected the guy that he owed a million to forgive his debt. When the guy that he owed a million to saw that he wasn't forgiving pennies, he said, put that person in jail and torture them. Literally, we'll get to it. Torture him until he pays everything back. And what is the comparison? Our sin against God is the million. And it doesn't matter how bad people have been to us. It's the pennies. Does it take away the justice they'll face? No. Does it take away the evil they've done? No. We believe in pressing charges here. We believe that some people need to go to jail to learn a lesson. Amen. But what we are saying is we will forgive them. Why? Because we have been forgiven. Look at it again in verse 15. Not my words, his words. But if you do not forgive others. Let's just read together. Verse 15, 1, 2, 3. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Amen. Let's go on now to fasting. Verse 16. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. Calling them out again. How many know he's been calling names today? Now, just let me just say this. Just imagine if you were a Jewish person, that was the kind of person he was talking about. Like, let's say, literally from the beginning of his message, he's been rocking you the whole time. 
Like you're the one standing on the street corner announcing your giving. You're the kind of hypocrite that just loves to pray to have everybody pray. You might even be like the pagans now just babbling your Jewish prayers. And over here now, you're a hypocrite in even the way you fast. Now imagine you get offended. Do you think on judgment day you could say to the father, but father, he was so mean. He called me a hypocrite, father. I couldn't listen to your son. He called me names. And in Matthew 23, he calls them serpents and snakes and all those other things. Do you think that will be a valid excuse on judgment day? He called me names. No, as a matter of fact, that shows even how much more he loves you. How many know in the family, amongst your children, you have names for certain behaviors? You have descriptions. Don't act like an animal, right? But how many know you do that because you love your children? You know, don't act like these bozos down the street. Come on, how many know you grew up in a home where your parents had to describe your behavior, right? What are you, you missing your brain? You don't have a brain? You know, what, what? Now, sometimes it can be mean, but let's just track here for a minute. What are the parents doing in those moments? They are expressing to you how important the lesson is that they're giving you. And so what Jesus is actually doing is showing how much he loves the Jewish people. Because at the end of the book of Matthew, he's going to give the greatest example and the greatest name. You know what he's going to call them? Little chicks. Little chicks. And he's going to say, like a mother hen, I've tried to bring you in but you wouldn't let me. I did everything I could, but you wouldn't let me. You see, he's not saying these names because he doesn't love them, and we ought to make sure our heart is like Jesus, that we love them, that the name is a descriptor, but he's saying the names because he loves them, and he wants them to learn. Therefore, if one of these disciples like Nicodemus gets saved, and he were to write a a book at this time, a great title for Nicodemus' book could be, He Loved Me So Much to Call Me Names. Wouldn't that be a great book for Nicodemus to write? He, he, he loved me so much, he called me a snake. He called me a viper. He called me a hypocrite. He called me a child of Satan. So remember, Nicianity is not Christianity. And if these things fit you, remember that these are things you are to repent from. So don't be like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their face to show that they're fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received a reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will what? He will what? He will reward you. Let's go through the rewards that we've already learned here in chapter 6. You'll be rewarded for giving in secret. You'll be rewarded for praying in secret. You'll be rewarded for fasting in secret. How many are getting the point? Somebody say in secret. You see, it's not supposed to be about you trying to brag and boast what you do. It's the beginning of the year. I'm going on a 40-day fast. I'm going to leave Facebook. I'm going to do all this so everybody now knows how awesome I am, you know. I understand you got to take fast from media and all that, but how many know sometimes people do that just with that trumpet sound, you know? I am Mr. Spiritual. I am better than all of you. You eat. You go on Facebook. You meddle with the things of the world. I will be leaving this world. I'm going on this high, high mountain 
Well, I will disfigure myself and fast and suck on lemon and be spiritual. <laughs> he puts them in place. He goes, hey, if you want to do it or when you do it, do it like this. No one should know even what you're doing. So you're not even boasting about it. You don't get credit from your friends from being the best faster. And, and you have to be in Bible college, trust me, to really appreciate this because this is exactly what it was like when I was in ministry school. How long you fasting, brother? I'm fasting 10 days. And if you were already planning on fasting 10 days, you would lie and say back, well, I'm going to fast 14 days. Well, did I say 10? I meant, I meant 10 partial, but then 21, you know, full or whatever, you know, or uh, 10 full, but 21 partial. And then another brother, hey, y'all talking about fasting? What's the highest bid on it right now? 21? I'm going 40 days. Three days later, no joke, you would see brothers licking Doritos, licking Doritos, going, going to the smoothie shack, buying a four-gallon smoothie drink. It's, 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 it's okay. It's liquid. I'm telling you, man, I'm telling you, licking Doritos and drinking one-gallon smoothies. Welcome to Bible college. That's what it was like. So how did they fast? Well, number one, they fasted only once a year on command. Only once a year, the Day of Atonement, from sundown one day to the next day. The other fasts were fasts that they would take upon themselves to repent of sin and get closer to God. Jesus will tell us later that while he's walking the earth, his disciples don't fast like the Jewish people. Why? Because God is with them. And then he says when he's taken away, then they'll begin to fast again. But guess what? That's a fasting of mourning. Jesus then comes back after the resurrection and says, I'm with you forever. So we're not commanded to fast the day of atonement fast. Our sins are forgiven in Jesus. And you don't have to fast for forgiveness and to be closer to God if you're saved. But can you? Absolutely. But don't do it to be noticed by people. Amen? Now let's go to verse 19, treasures in heaven. Remembering to tie back what we just learned in the previous verses of chapter 6 about not giving for others to see. He now hits at the heart of where giving is at. He says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Everybody go, oh, snap. Come on, that's real. Now he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The number one competing adversary for your soul that Jesus named is not perversion, not Satan, not your anger, not your temper, not peer pressure. The number one thing that Jesus said, you want to know what the fight of your life is going to be against? Money. Isn't that true? Now, this passage we read right before that, it says, if uh, the eyes are the lamp of the soul, and if your eyes are dark, how great is that darkness? If I ask most Christians, what in the world is he talking about there? Most Christians don't know, and that's okay, because it doesn't come obvious. It takes a little bit of study to get it. 
The first clue that we get to understanding this is the context. What is the context? The context is storing up treasures either in heaven or on earth. What do eyes do when it comes to treasures? Eyes lust after them, don't they? Are you tracking with me? The reason why he mentions your eyes here is because he's telling you, if you're looking at the treasures of this world, you'll have darkness in your heart. Because your eyes are the lamp to your soul. But what does the Bible say in other places? And he'll actually say right here in chapter 6, verse 33, what should we be seeking? What should our eyes be upon? Seek God and his righteousness. Look to Jesus. So is the Bible telling us that we all need to be poor and and, and live on communes? No, the Bible is telling us that we can have money, but money shouldn't have us. Do you get the difference? And so it's not that the rich person is bad and the poor person is good, because as we were learning in the offering time, poor people can be just as greedy as rich people, and rich people can be some of the most generous people. What the difference is not, the difference is not going to be how much money you have. The difference is how much money has a hold on you. Are you looking at money today and the things that it buys for you? Are you looking at it as your treasure or are you looking at Jesus and his kingdom as your treasure? Because remember, before we ever pray for our bread, we pray for his kingdom to come. And so I am challenged by this. This was easy when I was single and I didn't have anybody to care for. It's like, of course I can go hard for God. I can give it all away. I can live in a one-bedroom apartment in the hood with, you know, little pet mice, mice that come up from the bottom. I can live with the cockroaches. Man, that's awesome. I'm going hard for God, brought in 30 homeless people into my house. Man, I'll do this all day. Until fast forward, I'm living on Lawndale and Potomac and... I have my firstborn, Bethany, and our van gets stolen for the second time. Now what do I do? Of course, I bought a gun. Of course, I saved up to move out. I did practical things, but you better believe in the midst of that, I asked God. I said, God, am I supposed to stay here? Because the suburbs can be a treasure that my eyes could want, and they could darken my soul. Something just as simple as moving to the suburbs could darken the soul of of my heart because my eyes would be set upon it. If you have children in the back, would you go back and get them, please? uh, 10.45 is their dismissal time. How many know things can sneak into your life the same exact way? A promotion isn't bad, but how many know if that promotion is something that will cost you your time at church or cost you time with your family, that that promotion, you setting your heart on that thing, can take the light of your soul and turn it dark. So often we think to ourselves, I just need this. Once I get this, I'll be fine. And if adults, if you have forgotten how easily you've been deceived by that, talk to a teenager and you'll hear them recite the same things you are believing now. You talk to a teenager, just ask them. Ask a teenager, how much money do you think you'll need to be happy? Oh man, only about a thousand a month is all I need. Okay. And then what do you need? A car and all? Yeah, just a car. What about an apartment? Yeah, a nice apartment. You talk to a teenager, and I do all the time. They say, you know what? If I just had a 1000 a month, a car, an apartment, I would be happy. 
How many of you have a thousand a month at least? A car, an apartment. Are you happy yet? Oh, but no, you're smarter than that, right? Because you've talked to the Joneses, and the Joneses told you, oh, you need to own your house, sublet the other part, you need to have two cars, you need to have three vacations a year, and then you'll be happy. How many of you have reached that? You own your house, you rent, you got a couple cars, you take vacations. Have you made it there yet? Are you happy yet? You see what happens with the eyes is the eyes are deceiving. And John says, it's the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, and it sucks out the love for God. So I would say anything you do with finances, whether it was me deciding to move to the suburbs or you buying a new car or you going into business, make sure that this is still your treasure because where your treasure is is where your heart will be also. And that doesn't mean we can't have success. It just means success is done this way. Because guess what? Guess what? Do you think it's a dink that not worrying comes after teaching us where to set our treasures or where to have our eyes set as our treasures? No, it's directly connected. 99.99% of everything we worry about has to do with our treasures on this earth. And God is saying, set your treasures in heaven, and then now, don't worry. And we're like, oh, but I got to worry. I got to worry. Because if I don't do this and I don't do this, who's going to pay my bills? And who's going to pay for my kids to go to college? And how am I going to get braces? And how am I going to retire? And God is going, well, where's your treasure? Is your treasure in braces? Is your treasure in retirement? Is your treasure in all of those things? Because I know Christians right now in China that have none of it, but they're the richest people on the planet because their treasure is in heaven with Christ. So yes, if I'm going to get braces and I just spend $2,000 on them, if I'm going to have to plan for retirement, my dad's teaching me how to do that. And if I'm going to have to do all these things, I'm not going to do it making those things my treasure. Because, hey, everybody, listen to me. You'll either get the peace and the security of knowing Christ and his kingdom is your treasure, or you'll have the worries of this world when you make this world your treasure. So you're worrying a lot, let's be honest, because I'm about ready to read it, and this is where you're going to go. <laughs> you know, Jesus, he just went and flew away with the birds. Jesus is out there with the, the musical, you know, it's a beautiful life or something. Uh, what's the one with the woman, the sound of music? Like Jesus is with the woman from the sound of music. Now, he is in make-believe land because he's going to tell you not to worry about your clothes and not to worry about your food and Oh, that's nice pie-in-the-sky stuff, Jesus. But real people down here on earth, we know better. No, 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 no. He's taught you why you can do these things. Listen to it. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. Well, it's going to get real, isn't it? What you will eat or drink or about your body or what you'll wear. It's not life more than food or the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these 
If this is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Let's read verse 33 together. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You see this last part of verse 33 All these things will be given to you as well. Tell us, Jesus is talking about real world living, isn't he? He didn't say clothes weren't important. He wasn't running around naked. He wasn't saying it doesn't matter what you eat. He, of course, wants you to take care of your family and your children. But what he's teaching you is priorities. Is it always easy to put God number one? No, because in our flesh, we feel like we've got to help God out, don't we? But the more you walk with him, the more you live with him, the more you'll trust him, and you'll begin to see that it's actually the better thing to do. How many of you tried to go out and date the ones you thought were right and found out that didn't work so well? How many of you then waited and God brought you the best? There's a difference, isn't there? See, there's a difference. How many of you have worked jobs that you haven't enjoyed? Come on, you haven't enjoyed it. But how many of you have prayed and sought the Lord, and now you're on a path that you enjoy? You like showing up. Work to you is part of your purpose. How many of you have tried at certain times of your life to save, to save, to save, but no matter how hard you tried to save, it was never enough? But yet coming to church, giving your tithe, and being consistent with the offering, now you have more than enough. You see, God's principles work. But he teaches us what? He teaches us to give. He teaches us to pray. And then he says, don't worry. Trust me. When we put together chapter 6 with chapter 5, we see that God wants us to live a blessed life, don't we? The attitudes and the way of thinking and our heart conditions are in chapter 5. And then in chapter 6, this is kind of the do of Christianity. And so doing Christianity is about giving. It's not about taking. The doing of Christianity is about being in a relationship with Jesus and sincerely getting to know him. And Christianity is about having that depth of a relationship so deep that you trust him, just like the birds and the flowers of the field. So how many today are ready to give, pray, and not worry about it? Amen. Let's give it up for Jesus as we stand up. Come on. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Let's have the band and altar workers come, please. Can we take a few moments to pray over those things before we go? Father, we thank you that these teachings are still relevant to today. And so with every head bowed and eyes closed, if you haven't yet given your heart to Jesus, would you do that right now? The Bible teaches us that we repent of our sins and we accept Jesus into our life. It doesn't come by works. It comes by faith and trust. Would you do that right now and say, Jesus, I want to be yours. Forgive me of my sins, the things I've done against your word.
and changed my life. If that's you, just start praying that. The rest of us here who came as Christians or those who already believe in Jesus, would you look at your life right now and see how are you doing in those three areas? Because remember, if you're listening to this going, oh, this is for somebody else, you've missed it. Because in chapter 5 it says, he called his disciples and began to teach them this. I've listened to the audio Bible of chapter 6 this week probably 10 times. And I read it probably another five, 15 times. And I'm telling you, every time I would go back over it, something would stick out into my own life. How are you doing with giving? Some of you are saying, man, I don't announce my giving. And you know why? Because you don't even give at all. So you don't even have a problem with how you give because you don't give. You need to start giving. And some of you check your heart about how you've been giving. How about prayer? How's your prayer life? Make it right today. In your heart, set up a time where you're going to start being alone with God every day. You know, sometimes people try to be like all spiritual with me, be like, Pastor, I don't need to take an hour to pray. I pray all day. I pray when I go to my job. I pray when I'm out with my friends. Okay, okay, uh, you know, super spiritual person. That's what I do that too. But there's something special that happens when you take time alone to pray. It would be like me saying to my wife, well, I'm with you when we're with the kids, and I'm with you when we drive to church, and I'm with you. She would be like, no, 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 I, I get that, but I want to be with you one-on-one, -on -one, alone. How's your prayer life? Set a time this week, every day, to be alone with God and start going through the Our Father principles. How are you doing with consecration? Do some of you need to fast? Do some of you need to push aside some food and make some time alone for God? Go ahead and do it because you have to realign yourself. Few moments, few moments. Where's your treasure at? Let's not be in a hurry today. Let this word go through us today. Where's your treasure at? What are you seeking in life? Because what your treasure is will determine your thought life. You notice there's a lot of gnats around you, N-A-T-S, negative automatic thoughts. Worry, worry, worry. Chances are your heart's set on the wrong treasure. Your soul has become darkened. Your eyes are seeking the wrong thing. I challenge you this week, take a walk outside with Jesus. Look at the flowers and the trees beginning to bud. Listen to the birds sing. And begin to understand that God cares more about you than he does about them. And yet every season these flowers come forth. Every season these birds come out. Trust God. 60 seconds right now. Apply this word to your life. If you need help praying, come on up. Prayer workers will pray with you. If you've accepted Christ, come on up. We'll pray with you. We'll dismiss formally in just a moment. But take advantage of